You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Roger Martin, who is an emeritus professor of strategy at the Rotman School, University of Toronto, and also the former dean of the Rotman School, and the author of numerous books, most recently this one right here, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency, but also a whole host of other books, some of which I have right here, including Playing to Win, which he co-authored with A.G. Laffley, The Opposable Mind, we're going way back into the archives here, The Opposable Mind, How Successful Leaders Win Through Integrative Thinking, and of course, The Design of a Business, Why Design Thinking is the Next Competitive Advantage. Of course, that was very prescient, very timely. I think this was 2008, maybe 2009. 2009, yeah. Yeah. So Roger, welcome. I appreciate you joining me. Great. It's great to be on your show, Greg. Yeah. So if we look at this book right here, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency, you contrast efficiency with resiliency. And, And I think this book came out right before the COVID pandemic. And there's been a lot of discussion about kind of resiliency and I think there's been a renewed interest in what we might call complex uh, adaptive systems and an attention to the economy, not so much as a machine, but more as a natural system. Tell us a little bit why, in summary, efficiency is a bad thing, right? Look, as an economist, this is sacrilege, right? I mean, efficiency is everything. The idea is let's solve the efficiency problem and then all the other problems we can sort out afterwards. And But if you don't solve the efficiency problem, then you don't have the ammo or the resources to solve all these other problems. So how can one bash efficiency? Well, see, everything you just said is correct, which is productivity and the and efficiency that drives productivity is what makes economies rich, like the US, 200 years of productivity increases. But that's why I call the book when more is not better. Generally speaking, more ice cream is better. But at a point, it gets to be too much ice cream and you end up being a blob with your arteries seized up. My argument with efficiency, which is while it is something good and has made America and other countries richer, companies more productive, if you push it past the point, you stop thinking about things that don't lend themselves easily to measurement of efficiency but help make a system work better, whatever system you're looking at, company, your country, your town, your household, right? If you try to make every relationship with your partner, your children, your dog as efficient as possible, at a point it would become a miserable place, right? And it might actually fall apart because you aren't paying attention to, is this a resilient family or a resilient household or a resilient town? And you might do things if you were a hospital, say, God, having those storerooms full of PPE, man, we could use that space for something else. We could free up that working capital. How much PPE do we really need? And seriously, how many nurses, emergency nurses, do we really need? Couldn't we get away with this many instead of that many? And that will make you more efficient, measured in the narrowest sense how many person hours of emergency nurses per patient do we have? Ah, we're going to have fewer of those or how many dollars of PPE do we have in inventory versus revenues or number of patients or number of beds or whatever measure. And so when you take the notion that it's always better to have higher measurement of efficiency measured again in those narrow ways with metrics for it, chances are you will be missing out on things that have made that system kind of work. I don't know if you're married, Greg, but if you are, and if you said an efficient amount of time spent with my spouse is whatever, 17 minutes an hour or when I'm home, yeah, you might end up having your partner think that this is not a relationship that will last. Yeah, I think I see the book as really a, an argument in favor of acknowledging trade-offs, right? And of course, economists are actually pretty good at this if, if they do it right. And in our strategy classes, I'm sure your strategy class like mine, the right answer to every question, it depends. And you have a whole chapter in one of your books about how the educational system is not geared towards teaching people that's the right answer. We push towards 
towards certainty. And in arguing in, in favor of trade-offs, you're arguing that this narrow conception of efficiency ultimately comes at the expense of, of other goals and objectives that we might have. And you lay out a whole bunch of different kind of trade-offs. So isn't this really just an argument for, or at least an argument against what we might think of as intermediate objectives or partial objectives or using the wrong metrics or yeah. you, you talk about proxies, right? When we say we're pursuing efficiency, we're, we're not really pursuing efficiency. We're pursuing some narrow kind of subset of efficiencies. Yeah. Again, it's one of these one of these tricky things, right? If you want to have a goal, if you want to achieve something, you need to have markers that tell you whether you're getting towards that goal. And we default pretty quickly to proxies for that. Analysts will use as a proxy for, are you in charge of and control of your businesses? Did you make this quarter's earnings guidance number, right? That's their proxy. It's not actually whether you're in control or not, but it's a proxy for that. And so in order to manage, we naturally use proxies for things. How can I measure that? So how can I measure if I'm efficient? It's what's my kind of labor hours per store per week, or what's my labor hours per dollar of sales or labor hours per, per this. And I just make the argument in the book is just remember their proxies. Back to the map is not the territory, right? The map is a proxy for the territory. If it's a topographical map, it'll have hills, mountains, streams, etc. If it's a road map, it'll have roads. It's not the territory. It's your best proxy for it. And so I don't say don't use proxies. I'm just saying use them understanding that they're a proxy. And I, I think having conflictual goals is a good thing, even though I'm not sure they really understood the importance of this Kaplan and the balanced scorecard. I think had had a good insight. He didn't say in particular, make them contradictory, but it feels to me as though companies that have contradictory, internally contradictory goals actually will end up managing the naturally complex adaptive system that they are better than the ones that have unitary goals. So I think Southwest Airlines is a great airline in part because they say, here's the deal. We would like to be the lowest cost, highest customer satisfaction, highest employee satisfaction, and most profitable airline in America. And you say, Herb, give me a break. You can't do those things. You can't do those things. They're complete. How can you be low cost and highest employee satisfaction? And it's a reasonable question. And the answer is- Particularly if you're a strategy professor, right? Because in strategy is supposedly about integrating all these different things. You have all these different silos. They all have incommensurate objectives. One's a cost center, one's a revenue center. As a strategist, you're like, hey, what is the meta integration function that I'm supposed to be thinking about? Well, which you are not taught at business school, but not that we can talk about that later. But in the case of Southwest, when you put out those, you have to be more clever. So you say, okay, so how are we going to get employees to have high satisfaction? How's about we pay them a lot and give them great working conditions? Ooh, that's a bit of a problem for being low cost. No, here's an idea. Why don't we set up a system where we don't need as many employee hours because we don't do a bunch of kind of silly things. So how about having one kind of plane? So you don't have to move the gates around from a 737 gate to a 767 setting to a 787 setting. The gates just sit there and you don't need anybody moving them. In. And how about we say, we're going to pay you more than anybody else, but you have to be flexible. We can't have light bulbs screwing in employees, wheelchair pushing employees. You're all going to be Southwest people, and you're going to move around and do a lot of things because, by the way, actually, that makes you happier than doing just one thing all of your life. So you, you come into doing a bunch of things more cleverly to be able to figure out how to get beyond what might be the simple, obvious trade-off. And so I think it's simply embracing the notion that this is a fairly complex system and there are different ways you can manage it. There's not just one way. There's not one optimum. You can't optimize the Amazon jungle, right? You can do things that screw it up, 
by doing kind of extreme things like chopping down a whole bunch of it or burning down a whole bunch of it. But optimizing is not what you, you, you don't maximize the Amazon. You try to manage it in a sensible way that takes into account a lot of things. So I think your mentor, Michael Porter, came up with this term stuck in the middle. And this is what happens when companies have inconsistent objectives. And that's someplace you don't want to be. So how can you realistically in practice have a whole bunch of different objectives and pursue them all simultaneously? Is this sort of the art of strategy pops in as opposed to the kind of science of strategy? There is no science of strategy. It is an art, but I guess I'd put it back to you. So you think Southwest is stuck in the middle? No, I, I think there is some kind of integration function. It's just maybe it's yeah. hard to articulate, but they have presumably some sense of what you're saying is that you can minimize the trade-offs by making certain types of choices. Or at least go beyond the trade-offs is, the, I guess, the way I think about it. I mean, that, that's my now ancient, The Opposable Mind, which I wrote 14 years ago. I said, if the trade-off is between a day on the beach and a kick in the groin, don't obsess over what's the right answer, right? Just do it. But if you're in a situation where it appears to be between something I sort of like but don't really like and something else I sort of like and don't really like, is he sharp? Founder of Four Seasons. My first lodging property was a small roadside motel, if you can believe it, the Four Seasons Motor Inn, 15 bucks a night. Then I did another thing. And then my third one was a big city center convention hotel. And I liked some things about the roadside motel and I liked some things about the city center hotel, but I didn't really like both of them and all my funders and the banks and everything said, you're either going to be in little motels, Motel 6 and La Quinta and Holiday Inn, or you're going to be like Hyatt and um, Weston, etc. Choose Izzy. And Izzy said, I'm not, I'm just not happy with either of those choices. And he came up with the, what is now the most successful luxury hotel chain model on the face of the planet and has been for 50 years. For all of those people who say strategy can't last, they've only been on top for 50 years now, only with nobody approaching them. And it's because he said, that's a choice I won't make. That's a trade-off I won't make. And that is my advice to managers is it should be when you see a trade-off that you think of as really unpleasant where you don't like either, it's the signal that if you're going to be great, you have to come up with something unique a different way to approach the question to be able to come up with a better solution. And that they do not teach in strategy. They teach, choose. And, and lots of people, when, when, you, when your professor kitties always try to catch you on things, and they say, you're at the opposable mind and playing to win. And playing to win, you said strategy is choice. And in opposable mind, you said, don't choose. And I say, that's not exactly what the opposable mind says. And after you've read it, come back and talk to me uh, about that. But what I said, yeah, is he char- sharp chose? I can do the choice cascade for him is where to play, how to win. Extremely uh, choiceful capabilities, management systems, extremely choiceful. They were just choices he wanted to make, not choices he hated making. And that's what I want executives to do is don't make choices you hate making. Because that's the, that's the law of the jungle, right? He who turns and runs lives to run another day. If you make a choice that's a miserable choice that you don't really want to make, all it'll do is create the need to make more miserable choices and your life will be miserable. And I'd rather have you have a happy life and the happy life is he gets to you know be a happy guy because you know everybody wants to build a four seasons hotel in their town they all love izzy izzy's one of the great you know a fantastic philanthropist for those who don't know his employees would run through brick walls for him if he just gestured at, at accidentally but he gets to be that because when faced with a miserable choice build another generic kind of hotel motel build another generic kind of city center hotel he said Eh, don't much like that. How's about I try something that's different and better? In the latest book, you talk about this metaphor, the idea of the economy as a machine, the company a machine, and how this is sort of a harmful metaphor. So first, we can talk about the importance of metaphor and and models, right? In, In academia, everything's a model, right? And I would argue that the problem is not with necessarily using models, but you would agree with me. It's not you have to use models. It's really about developing a fluidity with models, uh, versatility with models, the ability to model switch on the fly where where necessary. But this model of the the machine that you talk about, 
you know, you talk Adam Smith all the way through Frederick Taylor. They're obviously nuanced theorists, but the idea that individuals can be seen as parts in a machine, roles can be seen as parts in a machine, individual company divisions can be seen as parts of, of a machine. And when you do this, the integrative function or the creative function can necessarily suffer. Can you talk a bit about why is it that we're attracted to this metaphor? Why are we attracted to this model? Is it, is it because we value analytical thinking first and foremost? Is it because we have engineers and systems people we're represented in business? Where does the attractiveness of this model come from? It pretty much comes from the takeover of science into territories that doesn't belong, which is an inflammatory thing to say, right? And is it science or is it a particular type of science? Because I think you, you advocate complex adaptive systems. This is a branch of science that you're trying to promote more. Yeah, it is. It's just the fundamental, and the folks that deal in complex adaptive systems have an understanding, I think, of this implicit or explicit. But this goes right back to Aristotle, right? Aristotle was the world's first scientist. So 2,500 years ago, Analytica Posteora, his great book on that essentially was the fundamentals of the scientific method. It was formalized 2,000 years later in the scientific revolution by Bacon, Newton, Descartes, Galileo, depending on what country you like best. But he laid out science. And the interesting thing that he did, that has been completely ignored. So anybody who learns about the history of science, reads Analytica Posteriora, learns about uh, the scientific method, gets told that you should make decisions based on science. And the guy who invented science, Aristotle, pointed out that you have to be a little bit careful because there are two parts of the world. There's a part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. And I, I always say, I use this to illustrate it. If I let go of this pen, what is going to happen? It's going to fall. Did it fall last week when I did that? Yes. Did it fall 100 years ago when I did that? Yes. Is it going to fall tomorrow? Is it going to fall the next day and the next day? And the answer is yes, because there's this universal force called gravity that kind of shoves everything towards the ground. And so that fits Aristotle's definition of the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. And if you recall your basic stats class, you were taught if you're going to make inferences from data, what is the quality of the data, the key quality of the data that must be present for you to make inferences to the universe from the sample that you take? It's got to be representative, right? If it's not representative, then any inference you make is deeply flawed and extremely dangerous. The good thing about the part of the world where things cannot be other than there are is when you do samples, when you collect data about pens falling, one thing that people don't often get taught that they should is that 100% of all data on the planet is from the past. We have no data about the future yet. So we were sampling from the past, right up to the time we tried to make an inference from it. It's all in the past because we have sampled it. Good news, it's representative because it's the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. So it's representative of this huge pool we call all data present, past, and future. Aristotle pointed out that there's another part of the world. It's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. And what I used to illustrate that is this, right? In 1999, there were exactly zero of these because the first one was in 2000. And now there are 4.4 billion of them. And now, unless it's within an arm's length of you, you get either the chills or the hives because you can't live without it. Aristotle would say that's part of the world where things can be other than they are. And you know what he said about science in that part of the world, the scientific method of taking a sample and drawing an inference on it to understand the cause of a given effect. That's what he said his life's work was, understanding the causes of the effects that we see. He said about science, don't use it. It wasn't ambiguous. It wasn't, oh, well, you can't use it. Don't do that thing. What does the modern world do every minute of every day? What does the modern business world do every minute of every day? Violate the father of science's caveat on when to use and not use science. Think about it. people analytics. We're going to do people analytics. What must be the assumption when we I do it? I teach that class. <laughs> People analytics, the, the assumption is that people cannot possibly change. That's something we know about people, that they never, ever, ever change. Everything they did in the past is completely predictive of everything they'll do in the future, and it's they're impervious to change. So people who didn't have one of these in 1999 cannot modify their lives to act differently thereafter. It's insanity. So 
My problem with science is the grotesque overreach of science into territories where the father of science warned us with clear warning. Why not to use it? It's because the scientific method doesn't work. It doesn't well, I mean, work in that field. I mean, as, as a strategist and a teacher, I mean, you're kind of like a doctor, right? And, and most things in life are, are non-monotonic, right? You probably spend half your life telling people to do more of something and, and the other half of the people, you're telling them to do less of something. And when it comes to the use of data, it comes to the use of analytics, it comes to the use of the scientific method, there certainly are huge swaths of human activity where there's too little of that. I certainly find that with my MBA students, when they come in, it's like, okay, I got I to gotta teach them to kind of ignore their gut in certain areas. But then when I'm dealing with sometimes executives who've been through the MBA program, then it's like, well, hold on, let's not over-rely on these quantitative models. So, so isn't it really about deciding when you need to apply the accelerator, when you need to apply the brake as, as no. Aristotle? No, no, we're teaching ridiculousness at the MBA school. We are not teaching to, to do little more versus little less. We are teaching methods that are fundamentally inappropriate for usage. And we're teaching our students to rely on them. We're teaching our students that the only decision that's a good decision is a decision based on data. Sorry, that's just wrong. This is fundamentally flawed. And so one of the biggest problems with business is we have a bunch of people out there misapplying science. And guess which direction this is going? Are we doing less of this or more of this? than we were five years ago. Answer, more of it. What's the hottest subject in all of business these days? Data analytics. And it's just, it's malpractice. The MBA world is practicing this gigantic malpractice uh, a sphere, unfortunately. And then it's self-perpetuating, right? Which is people go out and make decisions based on the analysis. And then they wonder why, when the future unfolds in a way that's different than the past, that some other company completely disrupts them who didn't analyze the data that did what Aristotle said. In the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, the job of human beings essentially is to understand the causes of the effects we see so that we can optimize to them. He didn't use those words, obviously, but that's, but in, in the part of the world where things can be other than they are, he said the job of human beings is to be the cause of a new effect. Well, and in this in this book, the design of business, I think you do a pretty good. You really articulate this idea, right? Where you talk about the different styles of of reasoning, different ways that we can come understand things. And but but in that story, you do emphasize that there are these kind of sequences or trade offs, right? And that there's different approaches depending on the maturity level of the business. When you're at the early stages and where you're engaging in, in some imaginative process, that's before you convert it into the algorithm. But ultimately, you know, you, you, you're, at least my understanding was that your goal was to ultimately convert this inspiration into some kind of algorithm so that you could systematize, rinse, wash, repeat, have management systems in place that enable you to exploit. Correct. And I also point out that one of the reasons for doing that is to give yourself the resources, to free up the resources. Because as you move through what I call in the book, the knowledge funnel from a mystery to a heuristic to an algorithm to in the modern era software, code is you free up resources because you get ever more efficient to explore the next mystery. Because if you don't do that as an organization, you will die, full stop. And most organizations think that they're done when they have gotten it to an algorithm. No, you have in some sense sealed your own death warrant if you don't figure out because, again, the right way, I would argue, to think about knowledge is we don't build knowledge, we subtract to get knowledge. When something is a mystery, you don't know even how to think about it, so you've got to think about everything and all possibilities. And when it's a heuristic, you say, no, you pay attention to these five things and they kind of relate to each other this way. And when it's an algorithm, it's no, it's a plus 2x plus 3c equals uh, a 12. And you've got, a, you've got yourself an algorithm. What's happened is you've left everything out other than those, uh, those things. And that'll be only good, right? As long as the environment doesn't change at all. And the environment does change. And so you've got to be asking yourself the question, what's the next mystery we solve? And unless companies sort of think explicitly about that, they become one generation companies. They've got one great product that they've 
exploited to the maximum. And then when they're, when, you know, other people have figured out all the ways around them doing different things, they die. Windows at one point, if you measured market share, Windows still has whatever it is, 85 or 90% market share of PCs. But if you ask the question, what's the real more important measure of market share? I would argue that the most important measure of market share is number of hours, percentage of the hours spent looking at a smart screen. And if you ask what's Microsoft's share of that, it's getting tinier and tinier because we're spending more time looking at this particular smart screen, right, by far, and things that look like iPads, tablets, etc. And last time I checked Microsoft's market share of operating systems for this was, I think, 0.2 of 1%. Of 1% and it's, I think, it's slightly around 1% for, uh, for tablets. And so what's happening as they exploit, ruthlessly exploit PC operating systems, Windows, giving you an experience that you're going to take whether you like it or not, while other people have said, hey, let them have that. We're going to dominate something else that's going to replace that over time. And that's the problem of exploitation without exploration. Yeah. So you referenced Jim March's distinction between those two. In- yeah. March is one of my favorite thinkers of all time, Drucker, March, Aristotle, Dewey. And I think there are a lot of management theorists, strategists that are talking a lot about this. And I think most people would agree that companies are over-investing in exploitation right, in today's world because of the pace of change that we have in the external environment. But why is that? Does it really boil down to the models that we carry around in our heads? Is, it, is there a reward system or a reward structure that's provided by external stakeholders that kind of reinforces this? Or is this just the way in which we teach our managers in, in business schools? What is it that's driving this? One would think in a complex adaptive system, ultimately those organisms that are devoting too much to exploitation, they go out of business. And the ones that survive, they presumably learn the lesson. They look over there and say, well, look, why did that one die? I want to make sure that doesn't happen to me. But it seems companies that once they get on the map, they tend to drift into overinvestment and exploitation. So what, what's really the root cause of this? Well, I th- it's, it's a little bit of all of the above that you mentioned. So one, I think the data is pretty clear that the result of exploitation is the shorter and shorter lifespan of companies. The data, I think, is pretty clear that the the lifespan of companies is shortening. Also, the lifespan of senior executives, especially CEOs, is shortening. And as March points out, the rewards to exploration are not as typically not as proximate and not as obvious and not as easy to measure. So if you're a company that has got a CEO that knows they're only going to be there for three years, you ask the question, should they embark in some new exploration activities? Chances are they'll say no. And if they're going to get the crap beaten out of them, if they don't meet this quarter's earnings, are they going to dedicate resources to exploration? Kind of no. So I think the capital markets are driving a bunch of this public companies, the widely held publicly traded company and the U.S. capital markets used to be a great strength of the U.S. economy. Now it's a now it's a major weakness of the U.S. economy. And that's why I think we're going to move to more privately held companies that can that have an easier time balancing the two. But I think it's also partly the training. You tell me if you just did a Marchian analysis of the MBA program that you teach in. And if you just sat in every class and just came up with an assessment of how much of that was exploration and how much of that was exploitation, I think you would find that the average amount of time spent in a a modern, let's say top 50 kind of or FT 100 MBA program is for sure under 5%. And if you ask a student at the end of did you come up with any toolbox for exploration? I bet very few would be able to say yes. They would have been the ones that took some kind of e design thinking course in second year. But as far as I know, there are uh, no such courses that are required in the first year. So it's only a certain number of, of students. And most of the students say, well, that's weirdo stuff that, that's not going to get me as far as learning more strategy models or finance models. So I think it's all of those things contribute to it. Part is it's a natural part of what exploration, how it works, which March said, 
partially how we educate people, partially the capital markets, partially the tenure of CEOs. So I want to get into this business education, obviously something I'm, I'm very interested in. And I think it was in design of business to talk about how, how siloed education is, right? And how the different departments don't always talk to each other. And presumably this is also driven by metrics, right? You want to evaluate academics, you got to figure out whether to reward them, give them tenure. So you need these well-defined KPIs. And so we necessarily cut them up into departments or specialist areas, and then we unleash them on the students. And then I think you argue that there isn't really a good integrative function that allows them to put it all together. And this was supposed to be what I think business policy classes, they used to call them, were supposed to do. And then that evolved into strategy, and then strategy became its own own silo. And so this is, seems to be a separate issue from the idea of turning people into noticers. So there's the idea of like, how do you integrate into some single function, understand trade-offs. But then even if you did that well, that you could do that for exploitation or you could do that for exploration. So is this, is this an orthogonal issue or is this sort of the same issue? I guess it's partially orthogonal in the way you, you ended it up, but I think it, it mainly contributes to the exploitation mode. I mean, the reason for dividing the silos, the dividing business world into silos is in some sense for exploitation, right? It's to understand a field, a narrow field, as we've defined it better and better, not to do things like explore how that field may relate to other fields, uh, how that field may be not a good definition of a field or any of those things. It's exploitation oriented and for convenience exploitation. And the whole system is set up. It, it's because I sat on like every you know, tenure committee for 15 years, there's a direct correlation between how hard it was to get tenure and how narrow or broad your research interests were. The broader, the harder, full stop. Just as simple as that. The narrower, the easier. So there is no reward whatsoever and a significant, and so the lack of a carrot and a massive stick in the business education system. And it's funny you mentioned business policy because I went, for better or for worse, I went to Harvard Business School and I took business policy. And I grew up with the feet of an entrepreneur, so my dad started the company when I was two, so I have no recollection of a life other than my dad running a company, a little animal feed manufacturing company that's now a big animal feed manufacturing company, but it wasn't 60 plus years ago. And so I saw him as the integrative function. He just was, and that was my conception of a business person is a person whose job was to integrate everything. And so I get to Harvard Business School and everything's chopped into these narrow silos. And I'm like, okay, it's not the way I remember it, but okay, I'll go with this because there's this beautiful thing called business policy sitting out at the end of the rainbow and I will get business policy and then I will learn something that my dad hasn't already taught me. And I did learn there was one and only one important takeaway from business policy. Uh, business policy course left with no doubt in the minds of the students that it is better if you're a senior manager in a general management position to make smart choices than stupid choices. That was it. I was absolutely sure by the end of the course because they would show a person making a choice that turned out to be smart and we essentially applaud that. And then we'd have another case on a choice that was certainly stupid. And we'd, boo, that's bad. There was no content whatsoever on how one might in advance tell whether one is making a smart or a stupid choice. No content. So Harvard Business School, business policy one and two in the spring and fall of 1980 had zero useful content, not one iota of useful content. And from what I can tell on that front, very little has changed since. And that's why on stuff that's important to business, I learned, I don't know, somewhere between one and two orders of magnitude more from sitting across the kitchen table from my father, who, by the way, has only high school education, never went to college, became an entrepreneur after high school. And it's just not even close. It's not a fair comparison. Harvard Business School or Lloyd Milton Martin, no comparison. And that's because you focused on the integrative function that you refer to. Can we teach this? Maybe this is a sure. Learn, yes. right? Is it something we can formalize? I mean, you talk about your role as a consultant. And when you were a consultant, you viewed yourself in many ways as a teacher. And you would go into companies and 
I think you describe how in the early days of your consulting career, you would just kind of serve up solutions. And then you realized that you couldn't really do that. You had to actually teach them to make decisions, better decisions going forward. And you gradually learn how to do this. But can you do this through formal instruction or is this something that requires more experiential learning? It's, I guess I'd say it's a little bit of a combination. The answer is yes. It's like, absolutely. It's just, you have to make a study of it. You have to like understand what it is and what, what it entails. And when you've got nobody studying that at all, you're certainly not going to be able to, you're certainly not going to be able to teach it. And business education is set up in the very lazy way education tends to be set up, which is in the business world. I don't want to make this in the in the real world, but there is if in the business world, right? If you offer the same thing in 2022, right, as you offered in 2021 for the same price, you may survive. If you try and offer it at a 3% or 4% higher price, you'll be toast. The only way that you survive is that you cost reduce what you're doing now to set aside that cash to invest in doing better things, doing what you're doing better, doing a new thing, whatever. And through that cycle of, of time, as your productivity marches down three or 4% a year, you get to do kind of new things. What education tends to do, from what I can tell now that I've been in it for as long as I, I have, is, is say, I'm allocated this fixed amount and I will just fill it up with what I'm doing now. So I've got this many hours of finance one, and I'm just going to keep doing that because it's the easiest thing to do. What business education needs to do is cost reduce in terms of time spent on all the stuff that we are way down the learning curve on and could do it way more efficiently. We don't have to have them sitting in class doing stuff that we can get them to do in easier, quicker, faster ways to free up the curriculum for the integrative stuff. And there is no good reason why you couldn't teach what you you teach now in business education. It'll take two or three years to do it, to teach that 50% of the time, and then create 50% of the integrative uh, function. I do believe that would have to, you'd want to have more sort of case, real world kind of experience in it, but that doesn't mean it can't be formal. That's what I do for a living. I teach people how to make integrative decisions. And it's totally doable. I have a methodology for doing it, for a set of tools for doing it. It's not like it's undoable. It's just nobody wants to do it in that world. Nobody. I was the only one in my time who wanted to do that. And it was the hardest thing possible to do. I was surrounded by good people. I have nothing bad to say about the people. But if you want to ask the question, are there lots of people in that world interested in doing what you described? The answer is no, Greg. Business schools have figured out a way to do more or less the same thing over and over again and still jack up their prices from year to year. <laughs> but somewhere in the early 2000s, we reached peak business education. I think business education is going, uh, graduate business education is going to be in a decline, a steep decline for the rest of time. Not also, there, there are all sorts of kiddies coming out of high school who want to learn about business. And so undergrad business education, which I don't know, most people don't realize is 22% of the degrees given out in four-year colleges in all of America. So it's gigantic apparatus. MBAs are 27% of graduate degrees, but that's going to absolutely crater. And it's because it's a bunch of strategy decisions led by Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School made a fateful decision when it went to deferred admits, right? Because a key part of Harvard Business School is edutainment, right? The case studies are edutainment, and it makes for better edutainment if you have people who have work experience in the class. And so they said in the 70s, we're going to let you apply in senior year at college, but you'll get what's called a deferred admit. Then you'll have to go out and get a job for two years and then come back. And then after a while, they did away with the deferred admits because that was, it it turned out to be irritating and annoying for them. It was all about them. But they left with you need work experience in order to win the competition uh, for getting a spot in those hallowed halls. It expanded from two years, the original requirement, to four and a half on average. Most great business schools, yours uh, would be the same, are between four and five years of work experience, full time work experience for your students. And what the business schools just didn't get, they should have, but they didn't get is that 
they dramatically raised the opportunity cost associated with the two years of business education. I was one of the last of the breed who was allowed, I don't know why they let, let me in, uh, allowed to go directly from undergrad to business school. And so I'd never had, I always worked like a dog every summer and everything, but all you, when you just work for the summer, all you do is sort of build up a little bit of cash that you deplete during the winter. I never had the experience of a paycheck, like a full-time paycheck, where you were in equilibrium and you were spending what you had around the entire year. So I had a fish tank and a rug, and those were my world day possessions. And I wandered across the river from Cambridge to Alston and happily did my business education. But I watched all these people around me, oh my God, who had given up their jobs, they'd moved their family to here and had to rent a house and all of this stuff. And now the opportunity cost is so high, right? Because those people are now making seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year before they get. So it's a hundred and hundred and sixty, hundred and eighty, two hundred thousand of opportunity costs, along with the couple hundred thousand that you gotta pay for tuition and, and room and board. And it's just too expensive for students to justify it. And there's been a proliferation of them. So there's 150 grand of them come out every year. So it's a business that has structured itself to be monumentally high cost and it's pushed up tuition way above real costs in every year in the last you know, 50, 50 years. And so it's heading for extinction. But if I understand your, your critique correctly, that runs through a lot of all of your books, it is that this is not just limited to business schools, right? Engineering schools, public policy schools, medical schools, all of them are prioritizing a, a particular way of, of thinking, which in the most recent book you characterize as an obsession with efficiency or the mechanistic view of the world. But And it, it's all about a mindset, right? And if you go all the way back to the opposable mind, right, this is a, a way of thinking which is not in our educational system, even going back to the elementary school. So elementary school right. prioritizes uh, obsession with certainty. You know, there's a right answer to everything. And, and even if a business school wanted to completely revolutionize the way it taught things, would that be too late? If our business schools, could they potentially be the ones that lead the, the path forward out of this mess? Or is the reason for this kind of way of thinking? Is it the business schools that are to blame? Is it economics that's to blame? And if they're to blame, then maybe they're the ones that could potentially lead the, the way out of this mess? Yeah, it'll be hard because it is late. That's one of the things I discovered. I, I came to the Rotman School to teach integrative thinking, to create a curriculum around the notion of integrative thinking, the integrative function, as you called it, and came to the conclusion that it was far too late to do that. And in fact, the single proudest thing for me, about my experience at the Rotman School was the creation of the I Think program, which teaches integrative thinking in the K through 12 system. And I thought at first I had enough of a conceit about it to think only people with much more developed brains can do this. Kindergarten kids can do this as well as or better than MBAs uh, students. One is because we don't have to un have them unlearn anything to do it. So I think that's. If I were taking a you know, billion dollars or something to spend on where I would be teaching differently, it would be in the K through 12 system. But for me, the, the bet noir here is the overreach of science. It just discourages and, and actually sickens me. We can teach in statistics class representative samples and then ignore that when we want to apply science to something where it is just absolutely the case that a sample drawn from the past is not representative of the universe that we're trying to make a decision about. And it's at this basic level of fraudulent. And I write about this and I get people saying, oh, no, we make all sorts of adjustments for this and that when we're doing our analysis. And it's like, obviously, you just did not understand the core point. You're trying to defend the notion that somehow with your adjustments, you'd have made adjustments that would have said, yeah, we can get from zero to 4.4 billion. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yep. No, you know, in, 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 in smartphone usage. No, you can't. And any, anything you come up with is just stupid. But we teach that that's what you're supposed to do. And it worries me, the political dialogue. All these people saying, well, we have to make science-based decisions and database decisions. We've got to make science-based decisions about COVID. Okay, so we don't know jack about this. We call it COVID because it's a novel coronavirus that we've never seen before. and we're going to make our decisions based on data. Yeah. So how did well, that? But don't you think that some of this is really a wariness about 
discretion. You talk about how regulators need to have the ability to adjust on the fly, right? And teachers need to have the ability to adjust on the fly. We need to shy away from these rigid metrics. When we give people discretion, I think there's a, there's a concern that people will either make decisions out of self-interest or out of you know, laziness, or the teachers aren't going to do their job and we won't have any way of tracking whether they're doing their job. And we won't have any way of measuring whether the companies are actually successful because we, we can't tie it to these metrics. And if we allow people to sort of hire based on things other than these objective metrics, they're going to be racist and they're going to be sexist and they're going to be exercising homophily, right? So particularly in America, where we, we were very concerned about whether it's, it's due process or, or fair treatment, we prioritize these kind of objective standards and objective metrics like no child left behind and so forth. How do we balance the need for some objectivity and, and accountability with the ability to appreciate the complexity of things. When you say, okay, we com complex adaptive system, the wings of the butterfly, we don't know exactly how things, doesn't that mean that we're opening up Pandora's box and allowing anyone to use that as a justification for virtually anything? One, I, one, I guess I would say, Greg, be careful of getting into the legal system on this front, right? Because does the legal system make decisions based on the analysis, scientific analysis? No. They have what are hopefully wise men and women sitting on benches, weighing things and making what are called judgments. That's why they're called judges. <laughs> they make judgments. So it's not as though has that system imploded on us and been a total disaster? I don't think so. I guess balance is the word I'd, I'd use. I, I think we've just become completely unbalanced and we would privilege what is just gruesomely dreadful methodologies that are full rigorous over this Pandora's box that would happen with discretion. To me, it's, I mean, it's more pick your poison. It's not like, oh, well, this kind of works. And you're talking about a Pandora's box. This doesn't work. And the inventor of the methodology warned against it. And all of our methodologies are internally inconsistent on this front. Am I not correct? Like, just, just tell me, do you not teach in statistics in your business school the need for a representative sample in order to make an inference from a sample to the universe? Do we not teach that? Yes, do. You have to. Yeah, we have to. And if you don't do that, if you don't do that, these methods are fraudulent and will give you bad things. So in statistics, we teach them that. Then we wander over to strategy or marketing or HR and say, you must make database decisions. Go out and collect data that will, by definition, be all in the past. And we don't even say to them, now, are you willing to make the assumption that the future will be identical to the past so that you can treat this as a legitimately representative sample so that you can do your analysis? Are you willing to make that assumption? So just think about it for a minute. Just think. So you're doing people analytics and you're saying, this is what our people currently do and whatever. You're willing to say that they will do the same thing for time immemorial, nothing different for the rest of all time. You're willing to say that? Okay, analyze and make a database decision. Most people, when presented that in that way, would say, well, of course not. Things change. I can't predict the future. And you say, oh, so that's... Why then would you be using a methodology that's based fundamentally on the fact that you've got a representative sample and every analysis you do is based on that and you're saying you're sure the sample is not representative? Tell me why what you learned in statistics doesn't apply to what you're doing in marketing. And their answer would be, my statistics professor didn't tell me that, my marketing professor didn't tell me that. And so off they go, analyzing past data to make inferences about the future in marketing, when if they did do that analysis and presented it to their statistics professor, their statistics professor would say, oh, Greg, I do not see how that sample is representative of the universe. You said, I think one of the most helpful things that you used in your consulting career was the idea of getting people to articulate what would have to be true for their ideas to have merit, right? What would have to be true for their proposals to be workable? And this is, we sometimes call it sensitivity analysis, but I think the way in which you articulate it was, was very powerful. And it's an exercise that oftentimes people don't do. And it was a breakthrough for you because 
you realize that consulting like teaching requires that you change the way people think as a habit. Do you think we could be successful in incorporating and getting people to think sort of habitually in this way? Or is it something that the the pressures of everyday decision-making tend to push these things under the rug? Because we, we can say this stuff in class all the time, abductive reasoning, and we can talk about how might we, and we can talk about what would have to be true. And then when people get into the, the thick of things and the routines, they kind of forget how to think this way sometimes. Yeah, I guess I found that people and companies do glom onto the what would have to be true. They like that as a question. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorites was a client who the CEO got everybody a little wristband, a uh, little one of those little plastic or uh, rubberized wristbands, and that what would have to be true. You should have, you should have, you should have trade. Do you guys trademark that at Monitor? That would have been like a. No, we didn't. We didn't. Yeah, none of the stuff I created there was. That's another whole ball of wax. But after people get taught it, it does. A lot, for a lot of people, it does become uh, natural because it's sort of a fun little check. And what sort of the world of design and design thinking has done for me is, as I've come more to believe and understand, and Aristotle would like it, is that the job in strategy is to make things that would have to be true that aren't true now true. And so the greatest strategies in the world make something true that isn't now. Arguably, that was Steve Jobs's kind of thing in life. If you ask the question, what would have to be true? People pay, pay three times as much for a little white MP3 player with a little wheelie on it? No. You know, if you ask them, they would say, no chance in the world. But he made it true. And he made a whole lot of things true that weren't. And that, I think, is the job of a business strategist, a creative business person. It's what entrepreneurs do. And that's why people say, entrepreneurs, that's a stupid idea. It'll never work. Because they're looking at the data and the data would say that is currently a stupid idea. And if we just did things the way we did now, it currently wouldn't work. But the entrepreneur goes and figures out a way to make it work. And the, what would have to be true has this great utility in guiding you to the one or two things that you would have to invest in in an extreme way to make something true. Because if you just if you just said, I'm going to invest in everything, you probably not invest enough in those couple of things that would have to be true that aren't uh, true now. So it, it has uh, utility on that front. But it's most useful utility, by the way, Greg, is just in forestalling destructive argumentation. Because if you spend your time asking the question, what is true? People will voice their opinions very aggressively and loud, and they'll just fight. And so if you and I saw something completely differently. If we were asked what is true, we would fight. But if if a good facilitator asks, Greg, what would have to be true for this to be a good idea? And, and even did it in a separate room. And what took me to a separate room and said, what would have to be true? Or what would have to be true is may be exactly the same. You just think one thing is true. And I think that thing is not true. So what it helps do is get people to lay out the logic What's their fundamental logic? And then they figure out that they actually agree on more. Like in the case I've just described, you and I say, oh, wow, we see the logic of this choice is exactly the same. It's just my data says it ain't true and your data says it is true. Okay, then we can at least go after that and say, maybe if we collected some more, if we did this and we did that. So rather than getting us butting heads, it helps get us on the same page that said, yep, this is the way I would make the choice. But I believe different things than you believe. And then we can work on just that, not the logic. Well, in, in the latest book, you talk a lot about frictions, right? And how do you create frictions and, and speed bumps? And how do you incorporate them into decision-making? How do you incorporate them into kind of organizational design? I found this to be super interesting. I find this to be something that you see in design thinking quite a bit. You see it in architecture, right? You see it in how you can shape the environment it kind of tied back together this idea of, you know, you create the models and the models shape you, you create the environment and the environment shapes you, you create the decision-making process and the organizational process, and then that kind of shapes you. Is this going to be a new discipline? Are we going to have a course on inefficiency design, you know, optimal frictions? Could we do a whole, spin out a whole course on this? I think you could. I'm not sure anybody would be interested in offering it, but yeah, you could. And I think it would be useful. And it would be useful to have a course. I mean, it would be more of a public policy school course, I can imagine, than on, which is the intelligent design of friction. All friction is not good, but there is some friction that we need to put in systems to make them continue to work. 
I don't know if you're a football fan, but in the West Coast offense and Bill Walsh in the West Coast on, offense was ripping apart defenses and threatening to throw off the offensive defense balance in the league and make it just a little more like the NBA where you just race up and down the floor and, and score points. They put friction into the system, right? What was the friction? Your cornerbacks now can chuck the receiver. It's so technical. You can chuck the receiver once within the first five yards from the line of scrimmage. Don't you love that? I just love that. So incredibly specific. Not twice, not seven yards, five yards once, but that put friction into the pass routes in the West Coast offense that brought offense and defense back into balance. And so that is representative of really clever design of friction. It didn't destroy the game. It took a little while to adjust to it, but I would argue that it made the game better. You talk about competition committees and antitrust law is, is an area where we could discuss that all day as well, but that's also about creating frictions and for system-wide optimality. But I want to end with the, the business school. So you said at one point that when you, you wanted to leave behind a business school that was unrecognizable compared to the one that you found when you took on your deanship, do you think you succeeded? What would we need to do in order to create a business school of the future? Would we have to think about separating kind of research and teaching functions? Would we have to think more about how we reward people? I know in the, in the book, you mentioned that we have a system where the specialized cogs don't get rewarded and the integrators get rewarded. But I, I tend to see it the other way around. I think that specialists, at least in the professions, are rewarded and the kind of integrators are often undercompensated. Certainly in, in medicine, you know, the general practitioners are not rewarded. In academia, the generalists are generally not rewarded. What would we need to do to make business schools the shining light of creating these folks who can engage in integrative thinking? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I guess I came to the conclusion after 15 years of working that business education is impervious to integrative thinking. And so I think the answer would have to come on the outside. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the Drucker Center at, at Claremont, I'm friendly with them and they invite me to various conferences. There was one conference on imagining the future of business education. And you had to come up with what would your model be? And mine was, I, it was something I fancifully called not the MBA and to say, go do an MBA, because you need those three letters. And those letters are so ensconced in the infrastructure of American and global business. But let's uh, this is looking at American business. And so just go do that, get that out of the way. Maybe go to University of Phoenix and get it done, or Southern New Hampshire University, just get the three letters and get the basic uh, stuff. And then you would set it up as a program you take after your MBA, and it would be 100% integrative kind of themed stuff. And I, I felt you could do in a fall or spring, like a 12-week program. I could take somebody in a 12-week program and with the help of a bunch of other professorial friends who I'd bring in, interesting enough, mainly if not exclusively non-tenure stream types, you could teach them to be a general manager. Now, you're never going to be awesome at something the first time you try it, but I would put them on a course that would make them a great general manager. And so if they were willing to invest, and I was trying to think, would it be smarter if you were going to do this, would it be smarter to start at May 15th when all of them are done and have it be done before many of them go to work September 1? So actually between the end of business school and their job, they could get the sort of the postdoc, the quickie postdoc necessary. So that's probably what I would do. I would just leave it be and say, you're going to do what you're going to do in you know, traditional Business education is a uh, graduate MBA education is going to keep losing out to cheaper, quicker, more flexible, low cost online versions. And you just let that happen and tack something on to the end of it that no business school is interested in diving into. Do you think that Y Combinators and startups are the new postdocs, so to speak, right? I mean, if you have experience trying to build a business from scratch and spend a year doing it, and even if you fail, isn't that one way to learn integrative thinking by fire? Yeah, the Tom Wolf approach. Send them up. And if they crash, they aren't a pilot. And if they land, they're they're a pilot. Like, I think it's that. I, I guess I'm nerdly enough, Greg, to think that I'd want more 
content. Now it's not as though they don't have content. Y Combinator does, and we have a we had a thing at, at the Robin School that's been very successful called CDL Creative Destruction Lab that was sort of built on a Y Combinator model. So it's not there, so there isn't any content by any stretch of the imagination. But I'd want a little more content rich thing than the incubators. But I'm all for them. I funded one, raised money for one, got it off the ground. So it's not like I'm I'm not for them, but. I think there's more content to provide. And if I ask me, why don't you, why don't you just do it, Roger? I'm, I'm just, I kind of love what I do now. I love advising CEOs on strategy and teaching them to be better strategists and writing. And so I don't have the fire in my belly for, if you will, traditional education at this point. But you could do it, Greg. I might just do it, Roger. This has been fantastic. We barely even scratched the surface of this book when more is not better. There's a whole lot of great stuff in there about models, thinking in models, about resiliency, about different trade-offs. We didn't even talk about Gauss versus Pareto. We could go into that connectedness and the winner-take-all society. We could get into that on another day. But I also recommend all these other books. Playing to Win, this is a, sort of a Bible of strategy for a lot of folks. And uh, the cascade of choices, you know, sort of entered the lexicon of business strategy. The Opposable Mind, Design a Business. You've done so much to help what we now call design thinking get incorporated into the business school curriculum. Roger, I appreciate you joining me. Let's talk again. It was my pleasure. I would be happy to talk again. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.